Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. The Diddy TV podcast that offers behind-the-scenes interviews with musicians, producers, engineers, and other various and vital contributors to the world of music. Atlanta native Russell Carter is our guest this hour. He's joining me to discuss his exciting career, which began in entertainment law, representing bands like R.E.M. and Widespread Panic, and led to the establishment of his own management company, working with artists including Sean Mullins and Indigo Girls. Carter is also to thank for the Wire and Wood Songwriters Festival in Alpharetta, Georgia, and the 30A Songwriters Festival in South Walton, Florida, a premier festival with past performers including Jackson Brown, Brandy Carlisle, Brian Wilson, Emmylou Harris, Graham Nash, John Prine, Grace Potter, Jason Isbell, and hundreds of others. Russell shares all sorts of interesting details about his life's journey, and we're honored to have him on the program. Take a listen and enjoy, and we'll catch up again soon at the end of the show. So it's it's great to uh, great to see you. Where are you? In, are you in Atlanta right now, or? Yeah, yeah, at my office in Atlanta. How long in have you? Fort Ward. Now, where did you grow up in Atlanta or someplace you know, else? No, I was born in Connecticut, um, but my family moved to Atlanta when I was in the seventh grade, and I went to high school here, and I went off to college and law school, and then came back and set up a law firm in Atlanta, and I've pretty much been here since. Now, are you a musician? Do you play the piano, or did you grow up playing an instrument? I, I have always, just as a hobby and for fun, played guitar and played piano, by no means professionally. You know, I know enough to have fun <laughs> with it. Um, you know, I can tune my client's guitars for them, but, but I don't play professionally at all. Well, before you got into entertainment law, were you someone who was really into going to shows or into music, or did you sort of get into it because you happened to work for a law firm that was specializing in entertainment law? No, not at all. I, I mean, I trace my interest in music to you know the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and when my family moved to Atlanta, it was sort of you know a shock to the system. I have three, two sisters and a brother. And we were all, you know, young kids living in Connecticut outside of Manhattan. And my father was transferred to Atlanta and we were ripped out of New England and dropped in the South and sort of a shock. But my mother is a, you know, a a present, I think, to make us feel better, bought us tickets to see the Beatles at Atlanta Stadium. So. That was the first concert I ever went to. And I i mean, honestly, I was already into music. You know, I listened to music on transistor radio with a little mono earplug every night as a kid. I mean, I knew top 40 music from New York radio when I was 10 years old. And then the Beatles, you know, that whole British invasion, that just changed the world for teenagers pretty much everywhere in the Western Hemisphere, I think. So, I mean, in high school, I was the music editor of the paper. I wrote about music all the time. I went to lots of shows. Then I went off to college and I majored in English and philosophy, but I really majored in music. I mean, I again, I was the music editor of the college paper and I booked some bands for shows. And But I mean, I literally drove up and down the East Coast going to concerts my four years in college. And when I graduated, it was like, oh my God, now what? What do I do? <laughs> I, it's like liberal arts schools do not really train you for much of anything. And I interviewed at some journalism schools thinking I really wanted to write about music. And they totally discouraged me. Like I went to the head of journalism at Chapel Hill, which was a really great school still is um, for journalism and he said look if you're not independently wealthy think of something else to do because you get paid fifty dollars a 
review right. at Rolling Stone. And so I went to law school just by default. But as luck would have it, I went to UGA right when the B-52s got signed to Warner Brothers. And the music business kind of descended on Athens looking for bands. I mean, it was... Was that during the REM time period? And I mean, that was the first client that I worked for was REM. But I mean... Put in perspective, REM, I saw REM's very first show, and I saw them dozens of times when I was in law school, but, you know, they didn't make money. I mean, they weren't paying lawyers or managers or anything at that point. They were just having fun, and we were having fun with them. But a guy named Burtis Downs, who became their, I think he describes himself as the CEO of the REM, you know, business these days. He was their lawyer for a while and then became their manager. But I got out of law school right before Burtis. So I helped Burtis, you know, incorporate them and do management deal and just kind of, you know, cut my teeth trying to help out people like that. I represented widespread panic and the black crows and I mean, indigo girls in their early days. And, and when I got out of law school, I just set up a firm and I did some general work, just learning how to be a lawyer. I did mm-hmm. a little of everything, but I represented every band that I thought was good. And, you know, I worked for free for a lot of artists until they started making money. But after the B-52s took off and then R.E.M. got signed and R.E.M., I mean, they were a very maverick band in a lot of ways, but one of the things that they forged with you know, other bands like them was the whole alternative rock scene, which involved a radio format. It involved a, a, a number of independent labels that supported the music, and probably most importantly, a network of clubs throughout the country where you could jump in a van and go play. and. You know, if you went to Minneapolis, you hung out with the Jayhawks and the replacements. And, you know, if you went to Austin, there was a scene and, you know, eventually Seattle and and obviously D.C. and Philly and Boston. I mean, there was just this great network of places to go and, you know, places to connect with fans. And so that whole scene grew. My law practice grew with it. And. Was it crazy to see some of the bands you started working with blow up? Yeah, it was very exciting. I mean, like the Black Crows, they, their dad brought them to my office when they were graduating from high school. They were called Mr. Crow's Garden at the time. And they were big REM fans. Um, but they, and they, they wanted to sign REM's indie label. But there was also a guy, George Truculius, who was an A&R guy who worked for A&M, who really wanted to sign him. And I always give him credit for having the vision of changing. I don't mean he personally did it. He just encouraged it with the band to go from what Mr. Crow's garden was, you know, musically to what the Black Crows became. And... What was their music yeah. like in the beginning? Was it anything like it, it ended up being with the Black Crows? Or? It was more, you know, REM type mm. um, alternative as opposed to kind of Stonesy Blues mm-hmm. you know, that their first record turned into. And, you know, Draculius couldn't talk A&M into signing him, and he went to American and eventually that's who they signed with and George came out to Atlanta and they recorded with Brendan O'Brien the you know famous at that point engineer and then went on to become one of the great producers of his generation but you know Brendan and George and the Black Crows you know went to Southern Tracks and turned out that record and I mean I think it sold eight million copies wow in, you know, the first couple of years it was out. But, I mean, that, and, you know, they ended up, they hired a manager in L.A. And, you know, they blew up big and had to get very experienced people involved quickly to 
you know, grab the reins and and steer them. Um, they're actually playing. They're headlining the 2022 3A Songwriters Festival. So I'm really excited to see them. They're going to play stripped down acoustic because of the nature of our festival. I saw is, that because they normally don't play together these days. So, you know, they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. I mean, through the years, they, you know, they've played as a band. They've played lots of solo projects on their own. Uh, but recently, it's called Brothers of a Feather is what they're calling their acoustic duo. Um, and it's fantastic. I mean, they look and they sound great. And, you know, the 38 crowd, it'll be like a homecoming because I think just about everyone who comes to 38 certainly was a fan of the Crows from the start. So I think you have a really unique perspective. So you are managing artists in starting, I guess, 89 or 90, somewhere in there, and you're managing them today. What has changed from a management perspective, um, kind of professionally and creatively, with artists because, you know, the whole industry went through a lot of changes during that time period. Yeah, radical changes. I mean, when I started managing, I, I signed Matthew Sweet and Indigo Girls as my first two management clients. And, you know, Matthew put out Girlfriend and Indigo's put out their first record on Epic. And both of them, you know, exploded. They went gold and then platinum. So I shut down my law firm pretty fast. (laughs) I mean, the last client I let go was widespread panic. They were were just so fun to work with, but you know, they, they had gone from, you know, a local kind of, I mean, they were always a jam band, but they were very local and played clubs to, you know, playing huge (laughs) shows. Um, Still. still do when when they want to you know but anyway i couldn't do both because you know management is kind of all consuming when you have artists that are successful and and indigos and matthew just i mean it was matthew's third record his first two were not very successful commercially and then i took over had a good time with his girlfriend became his you know signature record that you know, it was a favorite record of people to this day. But anyway, in that era, uh, record companies were at the height of their power. And it, it's because they had, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, they had built up big catalogs. And people in, those, in that era could only buy LPs. And then the digital revolution comes along and everyone started buying CDs and replacing, you know, not just buying the current music, but replacing their entire record collection. So, you know, labels are just, you know, making a lot of money. And it was all albums. You know, if, if you wanted the hit single off a U2 record, you had to buy the album. So it was 15 bucks or nothing, and there was no alternative. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the good thing about that was they had plenty of money to do everything a label might do. And that, in that era, that included signing lots of young bands and developing them over mm-hmm. not one single, not one record, but two or three records. You know, like Matthew Sweet broke big and established a career that's going strong to this day on his third record. And, you know, there were staff producers, there was staff talent scouts, there were staff marketing departments, promotion departments, sales departments. There were regional branches of all the labels around the country. Uh, There was an incredibly powerful network of radio stations to support music, TV, supported, you know, live appearances of act. And there were th- three channels. People watched TV, people listened to the radio, and and there weren't other alternatives. Right. I mean, all of this was very uh, pervasive in society. So 
everything worked together. So from a management point of view, I could go into a club, make a decision that a band was very talented and had a future and walk up to them and say, look, hire me and I will get you a deal in a year and I will blow you up in the next three or four years. And I could do it. And, you know, everyone plays the odds in the music business. Everyone I represented certainly didn't, you know, have platinum records and careers, but a very high percentage did. And, you know, I, I would never have done that if, if, if I wasn't, you know, if I didn't have the conviction that I could really do it for people. And fast forward now, you know, labels have no development staffs. Radio is close to insignificant. Uh, regional offices are all shut down. And, you know, if you're a, a young developing artist, I, I would tell somebody at this point, if you are willing to do this for the next 10 years, you have a shot to make a living at it. But it's going to be a hard 10 years. <laughs> That's a very different proposition. Um, you know, there's some cool things about the modern age. You can record very high quality music in your home for next to nothing, which wasn't the case 25 years ago. I mean, you know, an average record in the major label heyday was between a quarter and a half a million dollars. You can make a record that sounds just as good as that for you know seventy five thousand dollars now, and you can make one that sounds damn good for seventy five hundred. But it's hard to get the distribution these days that you had back then, wouldn't you, you say? You know, it, it's the kind of distribution there was back then. You're right. Getting distribution though is easy. I mean, you can make a CD and get it on all the digital platforms. You know, if you a lousy musician, you can still do that right now. The access is there for anyone. There's no, the gatekeepers are no longer there. There are no A&R people with discriminating taste. If you make a CD in your home and put it through CD Baby up on, you know, you can get it on Spotify, you can get it on iTunes, whatever. That doesn't mean anyone's going to listen to it, but you can get it distributed. So... I mean, that's one of the things we, we consider important at Diddy. It's the curation. And when listeners or viewers, you know, not, not everyone has time to troll through the Internet and find music. And so no. the curators and the tastemakers, it was really important to the artist because, you know, they kind of were able to spoon feed the world, you know, great music. And, and short of that, then people are left to their own devices to get out there and find the music. It just makes it harder. Like you said, it's there, the distribution's there, but just more difficult to reach um, a particular audience or tribe, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, there, there are just hundreds of niches and there's certainly as much brilliant music out there as always, but you're right. It's, it's the curation that's tough. And you know, if people find a place or medium like your company and latch onto it, that's all they need. You know, if they trust you, then they can access the music. But, you know, people need, they need to be steered in a direction. Right. I mean, there are fanatics out there that will dig up anything. But it's, it is overwhelming. I mean, I have, like down on 30A, there's a tremendous record store. Uh, Central Square Records is a you know, great indie store. And the guys that work there, I mean, they're great curators of music. And, By the way, I, I love Central they, Records. I've been, been to it, and it, it is you know, a great store. Yeah, and I mean, you don't need radio. Go in there and just buy 10 records, they suggest, and you're guaranteed that you're going to have some good music to listen to. But... You can go to the next town to a record store and they'll give you 10 records and, and they're totally different. There's no, you know, there's not a top 40 that means anything anymore. Um, 
So, it, you know, it's challenging. Like, it's hard to talk. People all the time ask me, hey, what do you listen to these days? And, you know, chances are it might be something nobody's ever heard of. Or it might be old jazz, which I listen to all the time. Because, you know, I... I can figure out what the great jazz records are because they're not being made anymore. They're out there and it's pretty settled, you know, which records are great and which aren't worth your time. And there's so many great ones. You can spend a lifetime, you know, learning about them, but it's a, it's a complicated world out there right now. What do you think is the most important aspect of your job now managing artists? I mean, what, what is something that you really have to do on a daily, weekly basis now with artists? Well, I mean, going back to what we were saying, you know, what was it like 20 years ago and what is it like now? I mean, I have to, at this point, figure out an alternative to record companies, which means, you know, we make records on our own these days. And it's not like, we make them differently than we did because my artists are successful and they can afford to, to do the equivalent of a major label record. But we decide on the producer, we decide on the studio, we decide on the musicians, you know, we decide who will put the record out. We own the record and we license it for distribution. And, you know, it's, we hire a publicist. We hire a marketing team if we need it. We hire a sales team. I mean, it's 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 not just okay. Let's sign to Columbia or you know, let's sign to Universal. It's we have to basically act as VP of records and put it all together. And the nice thing is, we can do it differently every time. It's we're not signed to a eight con eight record contract with anybody and and it it changes the the whole scene changes every every year and so there's a lot of there's a lot more business uh decisions to be made on the management end and it's evolving i mean there there are radical things happening like in publishing right now i'm sure you probably read this morning that Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. just sold his, all of his publishing and his masters for 500 million plus. It's a nice payday for Bruce. Yeah, that's uh, pretty good. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, obviously the, the superstars like Dylan and Paul Simon make the news, but that, trend is is kind of permeating through the publishing industry and and that's who would have thought that could happen you know 20 years ago what was it like managing artists during covid uh which is not over i guess but we're trying to come out of covid well yeah i mean it's a lot better now than it was in you know the worst part of covid i mean it was it was tough for everybody it, it was just tough trying to figure out, you know, just what you could do in terms of getting together and, and trying to do something. I mean, we recorded a lot of shows in this office, but, you know, we were super careful about how we did it. And I mean, once vac vaccinations came along, we, you know, felt a little more comfortable trying to pull it off. But I mean, you know, we were masking up and staying outdoors and <laughs> it's I mean I spent most of the year and a half of COVID booking shows postponing them canceling them rebooking them postponing canceling including 38 songwriters festival I booked the 2021 you know basic lineup and we put tickets up for sale and then we suspended sales postponed it twice rebooked it Finally canceled it and then produced a virtual show and then, you know, basically kicked it down the road to 2022. And then I booked that. And before I announced the artist, we put tickets up for sale and we almost sold it out because people were just so excited to think, OK, by 2022, we can actually get out and hear music. 
And then we announced it, and two weeks later, it was sold out. So there was a lot of pent up energy. Sure. Yeah. For everybody. So yeah. you you actually you manage two festivals, but um, there's 30A Songwriter Festival. And then the other one is Wire and Wood Songwriter Festival in Alpharetta. You know, or? I, I don't do Wire and Wood anymore. That I, for there was a mayor in Alpharetta who was a big Thirty Eight Songwriters fan, and Wire and Wood was a free show, and he said, "Will you come in and turn it into a paid event and try to create something like Thirty Eight? And we did it for three or four years with a paid ticket, and you know, kind of up the ante on the talent and. And then he left office, and the new uh, political team that came in felt like, given you know what taxpayers and businesses pay in the city and what they provide, that it should be a free festival again because they do lots of events up there and they're all free. And I think there was just some, you know, too much griping that. Hey, why do we have to pay for this when we right. pay tax? So it went back to a free event. And, you know, I was promoting it as a paid event. So I quit working on it when they made it free. But I also, there's the Opelika Songwriters Festival, which is in Alabama. And I booked that. And it's, it's, we did one, then COVID hit, and then we just did a second one. So it's a young festival that, uh, very cool old southern town that's been restored. It's it's where Auburn University is. Oh, kind of. I've been there. It's a great great little town. It is. My father was born and raised there, which is why I got interested in helping out on the festival. My granddad managed a mill in Opelika. What kind of mill? What kind of mill? Mm-hmm. Uh, textile mill. Very cool. So when did you start 30A Festival, and how did that sort of come about? Um, well, first of all, the Cultural Arts Alliance uh, is a nonprofit uh, organization, arts organization, in South Walton County. Jennifer Steele runs that, and she's the executive director. She and a couple of her friends, I think, went to Frank Brown, which is a, a songwriter's I guess you could call it a festival in Alabama that at the time had been going on for 30 years, kind of low key, but very cool established uh, songwriters festival. But they went there and thought, you know what? 38 would be an amazing place to do something like this. So they went to all the resorts on 38 and this was Jennifer's doing. She, she had produced uh, visual arts festivals and, that kind of art festival and dealt with, you know, the marketing people at Alice and Rosemary and Seaside and Watercolor, all those cool resorts down there. So she went to all them and pitched the idea of a songwriters festival. And they called me because they were, they wanted to book Sean Mullins, who I manage. And I was down there because I have a beach house down there. So I said, you know, let's get together and have coffee and talk about this. Maybe I can help out. So, I mean, this was before the first one had happened. It was very early stages. So I met with them and I realized that, you know, they were very connected with the community and were experienced running events, but nobody was in the music business. So I said, look, I'll help you all out because, you know, you need you need connections with managers and agents and artists, obviously. And they're fans of music and they knew a lot of local musicians. And there are a few big name Nashville people with homes down there. So they kind of had their foot in the door. But I volunteered and I brought in, you know, basically I called clients of mine and said, look, I'm going to get you a beach house in January. You got to come down here and play. And, you know, Indigo's agreed to do it. Sean did it. Um, I think um, Gary Lawrence from the Jayhawks and Susanna Hoff from Bangles and Rodney Crowell was producing a record with uh, Shelley Wright. So I just plugged people in and everyone came down and had a blast. 
And it was very small, you know, a few hundred people. Tickets were very cheap. Um, but at the end of it, everyone was super excited because everyone had so much fun. And January on 30A in 2010 was a ghost town. Um, like some of the venues that we used were literally closed for the month because there's nothing going on back then. It's called a shoulder season, but a better name would be dead season. So the next year I, I joined the board and I basically told them, look, I'll partner with y'all because we can build this into something really big and substantial and, you know, important. But, it, you know, I can volunteer time up to a point, but this is something that if we're going to do it, you know, I have to get my entire office involved and we're talking, you know, working on it year round. So we basically just decided to roll up our sleeves and partner on the venture and, and build it. And that's what we did. And it was very incremental. Each year, we added a couple more venues. You know, the first year, I think there were 12. Right now, there are 32. Um, the biggest venue first year was probably, you know, it could hold 1,200 people. You know, now we're at the biggest venue there is on 30A, which is 6,000 people. Um, if there was a 12,000 seat venue, we could fill it, but there's not, which is fine because it keeps our festival a very unique event. And in 2010, there were not a lot of festivals in the U.S. Now, 2022, there are more festivals than people can go to. And the ones that succeed are unique in some way. The ones that fail are just cookie cutter ones that, you know, are boring because there are too many of them. So why did you decide a songwriter festival as opposed to a traditional festival? Because that's very unique, I think, especially when you started it. Well, I mean, I, from my point of view, the appeal was I'm not a fan of manufactured pop music. Um, I don't, you know, I can sound disdainful talking about it, but I don't mean to because it's an art form and people who are good at it are, are talented. And, you know, it's a sophisticated genre. Um, and it's, and it's great entertainment, but for me, music, you know, has to have substance. And I mean, the artists that I admire and, and gravitate to work toward are more poets that sing than they are, uh, entertainers that sing, you know? So part of it was just to, to distinguish ourselves from other kinds of festivals and it's not that limiting because people write music in all genres. I mean, we can book blues and we can book jazz and we can, you know, book country certainly. And, you know, singer, songwriters, folk, whatever, alternative rock bands, but they have to be people that write their own music. And we also book lots of artists who are primarily writers. Like, and, what that means is most of them, you know, if they're writing for country artists, it's, you know, it's a big industry in Nashville. You know, like Jeffrey Steele was one of the first artists. He's been with us from day one. He has a house in Rosemary Beach. So, so he was a, an obvious candidate for the first festival. But I mean, that guy has written, you know, I, I don't even know what the total number, but, you know, probably dozens more than one dozen probably in the two dozen not greater number one hit singles for various country artists and and you would think okay so he must be a lousy performer if he's just a writer far from it he is a complete rock star um and you sit there and wonder why in the world didn't you become a rock star and you know he he obviously made a career decision to perform when he wants to and enjoy it and you know blow people away as a performer but focus primarily on writing and it's you know it's a 
fantastic career and he's one of the more successful people at it. But, you know, when you bring 250 people who write music into town, there is a culture that's palpable of, you know, talented, creative people. And I mean, they're, they're, it's almost like they represent the social consciousness of, of our society. You know, they're, they are the poets of our generation. And, you know, you can argue who may be the poet of the generation, you know, and obviously Bob Dylan is the first person that comes to mind since he won a Nobel prize, but you know, Steve Rowe comes every year. I think he is, you know, one of the great singer songwriters of our generation. And, you know, he's such a regular that there's a room at the watercolor Inn that's on reserve for him when he comes to the festival every year. And I mean, to me, that is a treasure to, to, to be able to, you know, present that every year for the fans that come down for the festival. And I mean, I'm saying this off the top of my head, that we literally are booking 250 artists every year. And there are very few singer-songwriters that haven't played 30A at this point. So, What were some of the hurdles that you faced starting a festival uh, back in 2010? And how did you overcome them? You know, it, thinking back to 2010, it really was pretty easy. I mean, I, I wish it were as easy <laughs> now as it was when the numbers were so small. But I, I think the primary hurdle in the first year was bringing all of the resort communities together in a joint project it had never been done before. And that was Jennifer's, you know, chief accomplishment that first year. It's like getting Seaside and Alice and Watercolor and everybody to sit down at a table and, and agree to all contribute to this event and let us promote all of them together. And I mean, I don't think, yeah, it wasn't like there was major resistance. It just never had been done before. Um, it was just a great idea. And, you know, all of the resorts still, I mean, they just jump right in every year and, and look forward to it. And, so that, you know, just the structure of it in the early days was was something to put together. And now it's now it's just second nature. As the event grew, the challenge are just logistical challenges. I mean, we house every artist that we book. One of the pitches that I make to artists when I book them is, you know, we'll pay you an artist fee, but we will put you up in a nice resort home on 30A. And in the early days, I had to send them pictures and explain what 30A was. And it's between Destin and Panama City. and But it's really nice. Let me send you a picture. And they would say, wow, that is nice. Now it's like I'll book them and they'll say, I want to stay at Alice or I want to stay. You know, they all know where they're going and they're picky about where they want to be. But, you know, we have a director of housing, Joy Steele, who literally spent half a year courting the rental agencies and private owners and building up a, you know, a collection of homes that we can turn around and give to artists. And I mean, she is working up until the day before the festival, <laughs> making sure everyone has a place to check in when they get down here. So that's, you know, that's a big challenge. And then, you know, just taking the 250 artists and determining when they're coming, when they're leaving, do they want to play two shows or three? Do they want to play around? Do they want to play solo? Um, you know, do they have players with them? Uh, is it a band or, you know, are you bringing a percussionist? Are you bringing a keyboard player? Figuring out all of that. And then I, I showed you the schedule upstairs and we were chatting at the start, but there are 32 venues, multiple shows each night in each venue. And I counted up their 288 shows in four days in January of 2022. So do you go on vacation right after the festival? Because <laughs> that's a lot of work. Uh, I mean, 
we are so brain dead at the end of the festival. I mean, it's we've we've learned ways every year to make the process uh, run more efficiently, but it keeps getting bigger. So you know, even though we're getting more efficient, it's still time consuming because it's bigger and more complicated. But you know, just the festival itself. I mean, Jennifer and I get in a car with a driver and just dart up and down 38 and try to stick our head in and see as many people as we can, just literally to say hello. Because, I mean, in my case, I've spent six months on the phone with, you know, artists or their agent or their manager or all three together and, you know, making sure I'm putting them in situations where they'll enjoy it. And, you know, lots of people say I really love to play around with so and so, and we try to accommodate all the requests. And, and if there aren't requests, we listen really carefully to the music and try to pair people in ways that we think, you know, when they end up doing the show, our goal is to get a note back saying, Wow, I never played with that person. That was fantastic. I'd love to do it again next year. And that happens all the time. And in fact, it goes beyond that. Quite often, people we pair together end up writing together. I was wondering you know, that if you've got that many songwriters in one place, if they start actually writing music while they're there. All the time. It's, and, and, and they get together afterwards and, you know, keep the connection going. I mean, that's definitely a byproduct of the festival. Um, but yeah, at the end, we're tired. <laughs> So what do you think it's done for the community? Because after all, I guess it was started as a fundraiser for the Cultural Arts Alliance. And well, I mean, it was started and continues to be a fundraiser for the Cultural Alliance. Uh, like 100% of the net proceeds from the festival fund the uh, annual salary for the, for the CAA. That's what we call it, except that gets very confusing because of the agency in uh, Nashville, which is also the CAA. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, the, this cultural arts Alliance has grown from a small nonprofit with a very small budget to, a you know, a thriving organization. I mean, they, they've produced visual arts festivals for years and years, but I mean, they created an underwater museum off the coast of Great Beach and Every year they, they get sculptors to create these incredible sculptures that are made to survive deep down underwater. And they, I think, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 sculptures are added to the museum every year. Um, and scuba divers can go down and <laughs> see the art. And, and I think it's also a good thing for fishermen, but um, they created that. Um, there's a, a new outdoor sculpture uh, walk, and um, I guess it's uh, part of Water Sounds, that development. Uh, it connects between 30A and 98, um, and it's something uh, they'll add sculptures to every year. Um, you know, they have a children's art festival called Flutter, Flutter By every year. Um, it's, it's a, I mean, I would maintain that the Cultural Arts Alliance is as important to 30A as the Gulf of Mexico at this point, because, I mean, the Gulf of Mexico draws people for their vacation, and, and you know, it's the best beach in the world, I think. But the Cultural Arts Alliance has created, you know, just a, a community that's you know enriched in a way that you know wouldn't exist without them you know we were actually involved uh, in a um, songwriting project and i think a lot of people really don't realize the talent of a songwriter e even the ones you're mentioning that don't end up performing we were involved in a project in nashville that was pairing songwriters with families um, in the military who had lost somebody it was for a benefit for an organization called TAPS, and the songwriter wrote a song about the person. So we paired them uh, at Starstruck Studios, and we worked with um, Frank Meyer and Jimmy Nichols. 
and they put together a whole team of songwriters. And what really struck me was they got together and three hours later there was a song. And yeah. it, it, the talent is, is incredible. And I, I, I can't wait to uh, go to the festival just because I, I so admire the folks that actually write their, their own music. It's, it's pretty amazing because you're creating something from nothing, really. And uh, yeah, it's it is quite a art form. I don't know if you've seen that Beatles uh, documentary, but there's a scene where Paul McCartney has got his bass in his lap, you know, a bass for string guitar, and he's just sort of beating on it, you know, rhythmically. And all of a sudden, he starts vamping and coming up with lyrics. And by the end of the little scene, he's written "Get Back." It's like so that's how you do it. You know, it's like coming up from nowhere. And then the next but, one is a hit. We were watching that documentary, and every song is a hit, and they're just sort of vamping, and it's crazy. Yeah, crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Well, I have one last question for you. And uh, what has been one of the most rewarding things for you being involved with the festival? I mean, the. Yeah, I mean, there's several things, but I mean, from a just pure pleasure point of view i it is so much fun to me to be able to just call up artists i love and offer them money in a resort and a fun weekend it's such a positive experience i mean there are lots of things in the music business that are very trying and frustrating and you know difficult it's just a reality it's not an easy business to be in but booking a festival it's just pure pleasure and you know, it's, I can call up anyone at this point, given our success and our budget. And you know, I get, I booked Jackson Brown. He's an artist that I just, you know, admired and enjoyed his music my entire life. And I, I've done some benefit work with him, with the Indigo Girls. So he actually has sung on some of their records, but, you know, somebody that I've crossed paths with, but to call them up and say, hey, look, you got to come down to this thing. And and then to be able to vibe everyone on what they're going to get to see. Um, I mean, it, I, I get to use my writing skills from way back. I, I spend the whole year emailing all the past and present ticket holders and basically talking them into and elaborating on what they're going to get to see. You know, I'm vibing them on who I've booked and why they'll enjoy it and send them videos and send them Spotify lists and, you know, send them MP3s to listen to. And and that's how we sell tickets. I mean, at this point, we don't spend a dime on radio or print ads or, you know, all the ways you used to promote a festival. You don't have to do it anymore. Once you have... Uh, you know, a history with a mailing list, you basically pitch what you're doing and talk people into joining in the fun, you know, joining in the experience. And that's very gratifying to me. It's it's obviously also very gratifying to, you know, co-produce this with the CAA and succeed at it. And, and you know, they, the CAA ends up with the resources they need to, you know, become a force in the in the community down there, and it's it's really worked out. Over, I mean, we're going into thirteenth year, so it's 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 not something that happened overnight, but it's something that's you know taken on real significance over time. Well, Russell, it's it's been a pleasure. As someone who's been to thirty A, I can tell everybody out there that the beaches are spectacular. And they're all going to want to go to the festival now that we've talked about it for an hour. And I would tell them they need to get their tickets early because <laughs> it's going to sell out very quickly because it's, it's quite the experience. I mean, that's I mean, I have always sort of as a, uh, a hook to get people just to buy tickets over time. I say, look, you better buy them now because we're going to sell out soon. And it, I think they always felt like. You know, I'm crying wolf and didn't necessarily believe me because it has it is sold out every single year. But typically it hasn't sold out until the week of the event. 
But, you know, as I said last, this this year sold out in three weeks. And I suspect next year, you know, if you don't buy tickets when we announce, it's going to be too late. So you definitely shouldn't tell people to move fast when it goes on sale next year. So. Well, thank, thanks for joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you at the festival. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you. I enjoyed chatting with you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Russell Carter and that you'll check out our other podcast interviews with musicians, producers, engineers, and other various and vital contributors to the world of music. You can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.